I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Breakpoint. For the last decade, we've been blessed with an era of greatness. Roger, Rafa, Serena, Novak. We can't just wait for them to retire. We need to find a way to try to win. After decades of dominance, tennis's legendary names are leaving the game. Now, a new generation of men and women athletes are ready for their place at the top. But who has the makings to be tennis's next champions and household names? Part one of Breakpoint is an intimate, globe-trotting look on the court and behind the scenes with up-and-coming stars grinding it out on the Grand Slam circuit. They include a mercurial Aussie who finds success with teamwork, an Italian player who's ascending the ranks while his Australian girlfriend is falling, an American who serves a match point on his hometown court, a Greek powerhouse trying to control her frustration, a Spanish contender trying to cope with depression, a Canadian phenom whose famous coach has mixed allegiances, and a Tunisian underdog who shocks the sport. Who among them will be the next to raise a trophy and become the number one tennis player in the world? I want to be number one in the world. I want to know what that feels like to win a title. I know what I'm capable of and I know how much work I've put in. Nothing in the whole world can beat that feeling of winning. You're tasting that all the time. Don't fuck it up. I'm joined by showrunner Carrie Leah. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Carrie, at the beginning of the series, you know, you point out that we're at the end of this era in tennis where all-time greats like Serena and Federer and Nadal are retiring or approaching retirement. I'm wondering, what is it like for this generation of, you know, tennis players who have never had the chance to be household names, to be in the top three. You know, this is these are the people that you're following in the series. Yeah, I think particularly for the men, it's been incredibly tough. I mean, if you look at the Grand Slams for the last decade, I mean, they've been almost entirely dominated by those three guys and Andy Murray. And um, and and I think, you know, it's that feeling of you try and you try, but you never quite break through. And so I think the tricky thing is that people have been talking about the end of this era for a really long time. And then, you know, like we saw with our series, that doesn't, it doesn't end quite yet. And so, you know, no one really knows when that's going to happen and who will take over, but there's been, you know, it's particularly on the guy side, there've been a lot of people waiting in the wings for a really long time. Yeah. I'm curious about it because, you know, one thing that your series doesn't get into, but that I happen to know as like a casual tennis fan is that, you know, even when you go to the quarterfinal, say, you still make okay money, right? But you're still losing <laughs> week after week. And, and that does take a toll. Yeah. I mean, okay money. It's pretty good. It all depends on what your idea of okay <laughs> is. Well, it's, it's good money. Yeah. Let's be real, right? I mean, they also have sponsorships and so yeah, forth, Yeah, right? of course, of course. And, uh, 
Yeah. So, you know, I suppose we say you're losing every week because you don't win the title. But yeah, I mean, quite often you'll win one, two, three games before before you're out. But yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, the really good players are able to continue. And, they're, and, and when you watch the show, you'll see that a lot of them are traveling with the whole entourage. They got a coach, they got a physio, they got their girlfriend, their manager, whatever, their best friend with them. And, and it's very expensive to travel around like that. So they have to be winning. Otherwise, they can't afford to travel around. So I want to talk about where we begin in the series, which is at the Australian Open. Um, that episode focuses on local star Nick Kyrgios. What makes him a singularly fascinating player to look at and to talk about? Nick is a really interesting person if you're just watching a tennis game. I mean, even from casual tennis fans, I think viewers are totally divided. Some people think he's great. Loads of people think he's great. Lots of people think he's horrible for the sport. Um, You just have to go on Twitter to see that. Can you please stop screaming out for a fucking serving, please? But you're not going to tell them to quiet down just a couple of Apologies for the colourful language. I lose my shit because of little things happening out there. I've just got such a short fuse. That's almost like a habit. And what we tried to do was assess the situation and really be honest about what we experienced and what we were seeing and just be, and let the viewer make up their own mind. We weren't making a judgment either way. Um, but I think he is someone that is very charismatic and kind of magnetic. And I think he has, he's someone that would readily admit that he has a lot of demons. And so it's kind of, I suppose, how you feel about those things, you know? And even within our team, we didn't necessarily agree, but I think for the most part, Um, for those of us that filmed with him while we were filming, he was respectful to the team. I see a lot of threads in Nick that I've seen in other player stories, you know, that I've sort of followed in my lifetime. John McEnroe certainly had a lot of temper uh, tantrums on the court. Also, people described him as this hobbyist player who didn't put his, doesn't put his full time, you know, head in the game. And people said the same thing about the Williams sisters. They had this period of time where they were kind of burnt out and went into like interior design for a period of time. Nick points out that he also faces a lot of racism as a player of color. Is that something that you also think is playing a role in what's going on in his head as a player? We certainly we talk about that a bit more in the later episodes and what's going on. I think, you know, the only person who knows what's going on in Nick's head is Nick. But mm. I think he definitely felt that he experienced that. I think he felt, you know, that that tennis historically had been quite a white sport. And, you know, the Williams sisters did so much to change that. They're absolutely incredible. And they kind of, what's so exciting now, actually, when you go and you see the tennis players is Nick isn't, you know, certainly not on his own out there. There's loads of players that have come up through the game. And I think it's not just race, it's class too, because there used to feel like there was this real barrier to entry. And I think what was so fascinating about what the Williams system, what they did is they kind of said to people, hey, listen, you could go down your local court and just play, you know, with your dad or your sister or whoever. And actually, if you work really, really hard, you can do this. And there's lots of players. Well, you know, there's a handful of players now that uh, on the circuit that definitely came up that way. And um, and I think it doesn't feel like there's such a barrier to entry like maybe it did when Nick was really young. And, I, you know, he's the only one that can answer how much he genuinely feels that racism has affected him. 
Yeah. I'm really curious about Nick and his lifelong friend, Tanasi Kokonakis. They found success in men's doubles at this tournament as the underdogs. Why do you think Nick's fortunes turned around as a doubles player in this tournament? Uh, Tanasi is such a nice guy. I mean, honestly, he's just great. Uh, I think for Nick, what and what he said to us was that it's so lonely out there. You know, being a tennis player, you're out there by yourself. And I think he really loved, like, he's someone who loves basketball. He's obsessed with it. He loves going to basketball games. He loves that team environment. He plays a lot. And so I think for him, being part of a team and not being alone is something that he, I think he probably finds it easier to, to play out there. So in the second episode, we follow Matteo Berrettini and Isla Tomlanovic. They're a couple in real life. When you have a group of young people traveling the world together, I just was thinking, like, we shouldn't be surprised that sparks will fly and people will get together, right? Of course. I mean, you know, it's a it's a really lonely sport and you're traveling. It's like this traveling circus and it's the same people that go from city to city all the time and they're young and they don't get to go out. I mean... There was one uh, player, Maria Sachary, who's just, you know, the loveliest person. And she was telling me that, you know, she lived in Barcelona as a teenager and she never went out clubbing or got drunk. And you just think, wow, like these kids, they are so dedicated to what they do. And and so, you know, these are other people that are also really dedicated. So they have a lot in common. But I, I think it was Maria Sharapova that said, you know, dating another tennis player. When you get to that those kind of leagues, it's just a, a disaster. So I think it's not surprising that it happens, but I think it, it it's tough. It's really tough to date another. But from what I, I mean, from what I can see. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. And a lot of these players also know each other because they grew up playing on the circuit together. Some of them went to tennis camps together. That's something that I also know to be true. But they handle defeat very differently, this couple. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. I don't know. Like, it's easy. I just retire. I feel like, well, am I, have I been fucking crazy? Like, no, no, it's, no, no. it's you, you have screwing up my mind. No, 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 no. You, you have and it has to be difficult, I think, and I don't want to speak for them personally, but I imagine when you're together and one person is experiencing a lot more success than the other, right? Yeah, I uh, I really don't want to give away what happens in the second half of the series. Okay. It is, uh, <laughs> it's very exciting. Yeah. Yes, it's very difficult. It's very, I think, and, and, and Isla says that as well. It's it, She says it's really good when we're both winning. It works mm. when we're both winning. And when we're not, it's hard. And um, I think that you see that come across in, in the film. At these events, there are a million network TV cameras all jockeying for position. You have your crews walking around with players in areas that are usually out of bounds. And I'm wondering, was there any tension at these tournaments with other camera crews, with the press, with other people trying to get access? Not at all. Uh, if there was, I, the, you know, there might have been. I certainly didn't feel it. People were really welcoming to us. They understood what we were trying to do and, and, and why it was, you know, hopefully helpful to the sport. You know, sometimes when you're filming an Adal match and you're in a scrum with a bunch of, you know, other cameras, yeah, of course, everyone wants to get the best position. But for the most part, what we were doing and actually the angles, the camera angles that we wanted were really different than the other cameras because they're already shooting that. That's already what tennis looks like. We wanted to show tennis the way that no one's seen it before. So actually, they were a little bit surprised where we're like, we don't want what you think is like the A-grade camera position because we want something really unusual and really different. So it wasn't, it was, no, it wasn't too bad. And actually some of them were really, really, some of those people were really great and really helpful. I actually want to talk about that because 
I do feel like when I'm watching tennis, usually it's a little bit like watching the house floor on C-SPAN. It's like you see the same shots over and over and over again. And I'm wondering what it was like for you when you first saw that footage of the game with all of these incredibly exciting new angles. It did feel at some moments like I was in between the player and the net. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was it was really a brand new way of watching the game. And I'm wondering how it felt for you when you saw those that footage for the first time. I'm so happy to hear you say that because it was so important to us. So we, we basically, we shot it on red cameras, which are these uh, with um, incredibly long leg, uh, lenses. And the reason why we did that, we kind of shot it like it was wildlife. So you could get really, really close up and you could see things. You could see the sweat on people's face. You could see the little grimace in their eyes. And it was so important to us that you felt like you were a part of the game and you weren't seeing it like you were watching something on TV. We wanted, and that's why we have that thought track as well during the game. So you feel like you're in their head, you're on, you know, you can taste it, you can feel it. And what we actually did to create that feeling is we actually at Wimbledon, we actually had the team come, go down to Wimbledon and the folks at Wimbledon were so nice. They gave us the editing team seats on center court for like half an hour to watch a game. And and what we said to them was like, I want you to watch the game. I want you to look, how does it feel? What does it look like? How, what are the angles that you don't see on TV? And how can we bring this alive for an audience so we see tennis in a totally new way? I know from watching the U.S. Open growing up on Long Island, um, like the I know that the culture is just very different. Like the crowds are different. The feel is different. The food is different. The dress is different. Um, did you experience that firsthand? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like I, I had never actually I had been to Wimbledon before. But other than that, I hadn't been to any of the slams. And I mean, you know, wardrobe's an issue. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> what are you going to wear? Um, it's very different. It's, they're very different scene. I love the U.S. Open, I have to say, because there was there was just something so gritty about it and so fun and it had such a great energy and um, it was so, the games were just so alive and, you know, Wimbledon is absolutely beautiful and there's something kind of really fantastic about it. And, and you know, absolutely. I, I love them all. I love them all. But um, yeah, they had a very different vibe and very different, very different. Uh, the cheers were really different. I mean, even just the sound, the way the fans kind of appreciated the game sounded completely different depending on where you were. Well, episode three brings us to California and another hometown hero, Taylor Fritz, who grew up in Rancho Santa Fe and is now playing at Indian Wells, the so-called fifth Grand Slam. No one from the U.S. had won this tournament in two decades. So can you talk about the stakes for Taylor personally? Nobody thought Taylor was going to win that tournament. I mean, literally nobody. And people actually asked us at the time, oh, you're you're following Taylor you know, we should follow the pressure that an American player is under to compete because it's been so long since they won. And actually, Taylor and, uh, and his whole team are absolutely wonderful to film with. They're great. You know, his his coach, Mike, is, you know, really kind-hearted soul. And, you know, they're so dedicated. So we, we just tagged along for that tournament, and it turned into something incredibly fantastic and a wonderful surprise for everyone. It really was. It would have been like following Andy Murray that first year that he had the surprise win at Wimbledon. What a stroke of luck for you, because as a viewer, I think, 
you know, if you didn't know what happened, which I didn't, I didn't spoil myself before I watched the episode, I think it's sort of set up that uh, Maria Zachary is the more likely winner of the two of them as they approach the finals. And he's just like, he seems to have no expectation (laughs) for himself that he's going to win that tournament, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, when we see that card, that it is, quote, the morning of the men's final, you know, we know something big is about to happen. As a viewer, I think it's going to be that he's going to lose. And it's even worse than that. He injures his foot. And we see something that you almost never get to see with that athlete discussing with his trainer, choosing between the potential lingering injury or playing the biggest match of his life. This, to me, is a 60 percent showing of what you can do. Let me just go out and try. That's all I'm asking. Okay, so... I'll pull the plug if it's not there. Do you want to go out there with 17,000 people? Why pull the plug? I feel like it's better than not going out there at all. No, not at all. Totally. I feel like I I can give it... I feel like I'm good enough right now to give it a shot. Against him in this win. Why the fuck not? Would you be willing to walk on court, play at 60%, and then we get the diagnostics? You just made it worse, and now you can't play for maybe one or two months. Like, we're wasting time because like, I need to get another injection if I'm going to play. Can you talk about what it was like being in that room? Yeah, absolutely. It was our series director, uh, Martin Webb, who was in the room with him, who had developed a, a wonderful relationship with Taylor. And I think in those moments, all you can do is is just you're just observing and you're filming. And, and Martin, you know, he's a great uh, series director, but he's also a fabulous cinematographer in his own right. So, you know, he was just filming what was happening and it is how you see it. I mean, it, that is exactly what happened. Actually, in fact, we, we cut, one bit that we did cut out was a lot of Taylor's team really telling him not to go out there, really, really telling him and him, him arguing because they thought it was very dangerous. They were really worried about his you know, ability to play in the future if he went out there, but he was absolutely determined to do it. So hmm. so Maria Zachary's story is a really interesting one because she is so imposing. She trains so hard. She really is a beast mentally, physically, but then she comes undone seemingly so easy and so rapidly on the court. Yeah. Let's go, Maria. I see her starting to glare at me. Zachary's turned to feel the frustration. Uh oh, this is not good. If she can get her head into a good place, she can easily win this third set. What is your impression of her? Maria is just such, she's such a kind woman. She's one of those people who, you know, she'd see one of us around tournaments and just come up and go, hey, how's your newborn baby? Or how's your wife doing with it? I mean, she is like a genuinely wonderful person. I'd say to be fair to her, Iga Swiatek, who beat her in that match, was on the ascendancy and no one knew that Iga was actually about to go on a, I think, a 37 win streak. And she's, you know, world number one and she had a crazy, crazy year. So, you know, to be fair to Maria, I think Iga was playing at her absolute you know, height. But I think it's probably true to say that, and, you know, I think Maria would be the first to admit this, that she just wants it so badly. She sacrificed so much in her life. She cares so much. She loves it so much that sometimes that feeling, those emotions can get in the way. And I think, you know, that's something that she's, I know she's really working on and trying to manage. It's really interesting how you really dig into that in the series. You also dig into it with Paola Bedosa. She was among the first to publicly discuss mental health and depression. And at one point, her team, you know, 
basically gives her permission to walk off the court. Is this a marked change from the historical sports axiom of, you know, toughing it out? Well, I think the difficult thing about tennis is that you don't want your opponent to know your weaknesses. You know, you don't want your opponent to know that you have chinks in the armor because you're you're facing each other off. You're it's you against them and you're looking at them. You're like, you know, two gladiators in a stadium and and you're fighting it out. So, if you show weakness or your opponent thinks you have weakness, that, you know, you could lose or you're more likely to lose. And I think is incredibly brave of her. You know, we had a lot of discussions before we filmed that scene. That scene was exactly as you see, it was totally genuine. I'm really grateful to have good people by my side. And they care about how I am before the player that I am. I'm going to fight to be one of the best players in the world. (laughs) And I hope one day we can all uh, make our dreams come true. She was having an incredibly hard time at that point. And I think it was just so brave of her to be willing to talk about it and really willing to talk about it um, so openly and be willing to say that sometimes she wants to she wants to die when she goes out there. Losing feels that bad. And at the time she talked to you, you know, she was ranked among the top in the world. Can you talk about that, about the pressures of having to live up to this beauty standard still in 2022, 2023 and the sexism that sort of surrounds that? Do you know, it's funny because that was a question that we asked a lot of players at one point. And I think obviously that kind of thing does exist. But I really think the more I got to know the players, the more, you know, the far more important thing was whether they won or lost. You know, mm. I mean, we don't ever get into the dynamics of how much money certain players make. And I'm sure if you are an extremely good looking girl, you get you might get make more money in sponsorships. I think the same is probably true for men. But I think ultimately everyone always wants to sponsor the number one player or the number two player. And it is probably true that someone like Emma Raducanu has experienced, although she is a Grand Slam winner. You know, there is a lot of interest if you are a pretty person. But I'm not sure that's hugely different for men than it is for women. I I thought it was initially, but I don't know is the answer. I don't know. It's a good question. So speaking of financial inequity, you do get into the differences between coming from a big country and coming from a really small country. So can you just get into a little bit about how players from smaller countries like Norway and Tunisia are disadvantaged? Yeah, absolutely. So if you have a country that has a grand slam, so Australia, America, UK or France, those slams or those tournaments bring in a lot of money for the tennis um, federations. And that money helps develop young players. So if you are American and you are, you hit a ball well, the chances are that you can get into one of these tennis schools, you can get sponsors, or you can at least get the what you need to take the classes to be able to learn how to play tennis properly. It's somewhere like uh, Tunisia is very difficult, as I understand it, because you don't have that infrastructure in the same way. You do have a tennis infrastructure, but you don't have anything like the kind of level or the type of expertise that you would have in somewhere like America or, or, or a lot of the European countries. It's it's much harder, you know, and, and for someone like Anz Jabour to be able to do what she did is completely incredible. And it's funny because Anz always tries to play it down. You know, we did a lot of interview questions, a lot of interviews with her were like, you know, come on, it's it's pretty amazing. She, you know, she's always very supportive of her her country because, you know, if you're there, you might there, there's there's other financial needs essentially right. than putting it into tennis. Yes, but she's the only player we followed who has her 
partner, her husband, on the road with her as her trainer. We see him doing her massage and her stretches, and everybody else has a team, right? I mean, there's definitely a difference yeah. there. Yeah. Do you think that people underestimated Anja Burr? Because she does have this unusual playing style as well. Oh, definitely. Um, and I think even at the start of the year, Ons was number 10 when I first met her. And she just had this kind of totally electric, amazing personality. And her and I got along so well. But, you know, she was not thought of, she was not tagged as one of the ones that was going to, you know, have the kind of year that she ended up having. Ons, congratulations. First African player to ever reach a 1000 final. You must just be elated. Um, I know uh, See the a smile of... <laughs> coming on your face when you're talking about the final. I'm going to put all the effort, every great drop shot that I do, every great forehand in the match. She, what she's done is really extraordinary. And there is an idea that, you know, it will be certain kind of players that break through. But at the same time, I have to say, Iga Swiatek, who you haven't met in the first half of the series, but she is the number one player in the world for women. And we meet her in the second half of the series. She's really extraordinary, too, because, you know, she comes from Poland and she had to work very, very hard to, to get to where she's gotten. And I mean, not quite the same way as in the same struggles as Ons, but, you know, she had to fight as well. And I think it's incredible to see these women fighting so hard and getting to where they want to go. One of the things I love about your series is that Rafa Nadal looms large on the men's side throughout all of it. And of course, at the end, we're at the French Open where he has 112 to three win-loss records yeah, and looms so large. And just his presence on screen, the way you filmed him, the shots you have of him, um, the scene of him warming up in the hallway, it's like it's like watching Darth Vader walking through the hallway in, in, in Star Wars in many, many ways. It's really, truly incredible. He looms obviously so large in tennis. Felix Auger, Aliassine from Canada. He has a new coach who happens to be Rafa Nadal's uncle. Now, the sports world seems to think he stabbed Felix in the back by telling the press that he kind of hopes his nephew wins the match. Well, he, he said he won't sit in either box. Sure, but, but does he withhold his coaching expertise? Who's he cheering for? If I'm Felix, I'll always have in my head, I wonder what I've left on the table by not knowing what Tony Dadal thinks I should have done to beat his nephew. What are your thoughts about that? In the show, I think we probably, we play it the way that was fair. I mean, I think Fe both Felix and his agent Bernard are very open about the fact that they said that, you know, at the very beginning, they had an agreement with him that if he ever played Rafa, that you know, there was no question about whose side Tony would be on. And he would, he would find that very difficult. So I think on their end, that was kind of understood. But I think at the time, and what we tried to portray in the film, um, wasn't that so much, but was the noise going around with the um, all of the media, all of the press, all the tennis commentators, everyone was talking about this. And I was, you know, I was there at the time and, and it felt like the big story. And I think also... You know, at that time, we, we, you know, we weren't editing anything yet. We weren't sure how to play it. But I think I, I interviewed Tony later, like about a few weeks after that. And he was also very conflicted. And I think he was really honest and, 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 and lovely in his interview. He was, he found it very hard because he loves Felix and he thinks mm. Felix is, you know, he's very dedicated to Felix and he thinks Felix is definitely going to be the next, one of the next big players in the world. But, you know, he's just been through so much with his nephew. And I think, you know, it's, it's understandable.
Of all the players you featured, is there one that surprised you most off the court? That's a good question. I think maybe Paula Badosa. She, when you first meet her, she's a little bit shy and she's not incredibly friendly right away. But as I got to know her, she, her and her boyfriend Juan, who are, is also in the film Juan Betancourt, the um, model and actor, they are so friendly and funny really funny and really open. And it kind of was a sort of barrier that took a long time. And when it broke down, um, I, she was not what I had initially expected in a really positive way. So I have a final question for you. Sports documentaries on Netflix have this reputation, this good reputation for ginning up fan and spectator interest in sports that maybe aren't mainstream popular, especially in the United States. I mean, cheer has garnered all this new interest in college cheer competitions. Uh, Formula One has obviously created a brand new wave of F1 fans. Is it your hope that people who watch Breakpoint, who aren't big tennis fans or perhaps casual tennis fans, will find their way to the sport after watching your series? I think... Our goal with this series was just to tell the most incredible stories, to tell, you know, to make the best films that we possibly could. I mean, hopefully the the knock-on effect of doing that would be to get people excited about players. I mean, I can tell you, all of our editors, all our producers, like we are all avid tennis fans from watching this. And these, I'm telling you, these guys, they're so fantastic and they're so inspiring. I find I find them really inspiring. And, you know, if, if that comes across from watching the series and people get that and they get excited about them, I think that's fantastic so our goal is just to make fantastic films but like if that comes out of it and people love them the way we love them then i think that's great well carrie when federer was out and serena was out i thought i was out but you pulled me back in (laughs) thank you so much for making breakpoint and thank you for talking to me about it oh thanks so much i appreciate it that's it for this week's episode thanks again to carrie leah for more of my takes check out my other podcast crime writers on Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 